Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The suspect in the University of Idaho murder case arraigned today. A judge entered not guilty pleas for him after the suspect declined to do so himself. President Biden meets again with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy amid a debt ceiling standoff. We'll bring you the latest analysis on how likely it is we'll see a national default. Sharing a vision to revive hope in the American dream, Senator Tim Scott launches his presidential bid for 2024. Hear what the South Carolina senator had to say and how former President Trump reacted. In Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis is accused of being hostile to black Americans. That's because of that, a civil rights organization has issued a travel ban. And a year-long negotiation comes to fruition. Three states in the lower basin of the Colorado River agree to cut back on water usage to keep the river flowing. New developments in the murders of four University of Idaho students. A judge entered not guilty pleas today at the suspect's arraignment. A judge entered not guilty pleas Monday for Brian Koberger, the suspect in the stabbing deaths of four University of Idaho students. This sets the stage for a trial in which he could potentially face the death penalty. Koberger declined to enter pleas in Lata County District Court. His defense attorney, Ann Taylor, told the judge they were going to stand silent at this time. In response, second district judge John Judge entered not guilty pleas on Koberger's behalf. Koberger was arrested late last year and charged with burglary and four counts of first-degree murder in connection with the slayings of Madison Mogan, Kaylee Gonsalves, Zana Kernodal, and Ethan Chapin. Koberger was a graduate student studying criminology at nearby Washington State University when the four Idaho students were killed. But prosecutors have not released any information about how they believe he may have chosen the victims or whether he had met any of them previously. Koberger's trial will begin October 2nd and is expected to last six weeks. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. And turning now to the debt ceiling negotiations. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is meeting today with President Biden at the White House for the third time this month. The goal remains to reach an agreement on how to increase the nation's borrowing limit to avoid a default. Joining us now live is White House correspondent Iris Tao. Iris, what's going on right now? Good evening, Steph. So we are seeing right now that reporters have just entered the Oval Office at 5.44 p.m. Eastern Time, meaning that a meeting is starting very soon, if not right now. But the situation right now is that Republicans are still insisting that they want major spending cuts to happen in exchange for raising the nation's debt ceiling. The White House has put forward an offer basically saying that they could limit spending on certain programs, including defense and some non-defense programs. But Republicans have rejected that offer, saying that they wanted to boost defense funding instead. And that could mean a deeper cut into some other programs that the White House would not necessarily agree upon. So right now, we are seeing still this stalemate happening, but House Speaker Kevin McCarthy sounded pretty optimistic today in the Capitol that they could potentially reach a deal as soon as tonight. And an economic expert also told me that he thinks the two sides will ultimately come together. Watch. I think we could we can get a deal tonight, we get a deal tomorrow, but you've got to get something done this week to be able to pass it and move it to the Senate. Do you, 
you're going to see right now is both sides, Kevin McCarthy feeding a Republican flock, uh, Joe Biden feeding a ravenous Democratic flock. They're going to feed them these little things, this rhetoric, this brinksmanship. But everyone knows what's going to happen. Uh, the U.S. will pay its bills as it always does. And of course, now all eyes are on this very important meeting happening right now at the White House. And we do expect congressional leaders, including House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, to speak right after they end this meeting coming out from the White House. So we will find out very soon, perhaps tonight, about if a deal has been reached. Steph. Hopefully we'll get more concrete decisions on how to move forward soon. That was Iris Tao at the White House. And Senator Tim Scott, the latest to join the crowded GOP primary field for the presidency. He formally announced the news in his hometown today, and it was met with a pleasant reaction from his opponent, former President Trump. More on this from NTD's Melina Weiskup, reporting from South Carolina. We're here in the gym of a small university in North Charleston, South Carolina, where 57-year-old Tim Scott officially announced his bid for the White House. He took a very personable approach today, showing up on stage in a long sleeve blue button-down shirt. It seems this is one of the themes that he's trying to create for this campaign, a very personable atmosphere. He honed in on his childhood. He says that this is the land of opportunity and specifically denounced accusations that America is a racist country. Country. Here's a few remarks from the senator. I'm living proof that America is the land of opportunity and not a land of oppression. I choose freedom and hope and opportunity. And this optimistic tone that he's taken has already seemed to have resonated in the hearts of many South Carolina voters. The ones we spoke to, at least outside, who are lining up at 8.30 a.m. this morning, all said the same thing. I specifically asked what they feel stands out about Senator Scott versus other candidates, such as Nikki Haley or President Trump, for example. Here's what the voters told us. He really brings that message of hope, and he also works across the aisle. He's in Washington right now uh, working for all of our best interests. I think we need somebody in the field who's uh, going to look forward, who's going to lay out a positive vision, uh, not look backwards with all the divisiveness we've been through in the past four to six years. And Senator Scott does have some work to do to emerge from this crowded GOP primary, including those popular names, especially here in the state of South Carolina. Nikki Haley is a very popular name since she did serve formally as governor. And former President Trump, of course, is very popular across the nation with Republican voters. Trump actually commented on Scott's announcement today, saying good luck to Senator Tim Scott and entering the Republican presidential primary race. And Tim is a big step from Ron DeSantis sanctimonious, who is totally unelectable. Now, a top issue that Senator Scott pointed out was that the first action he would take upon taking the White House, if he does get elected, is immigration. And this comes at a time when President Biden's handling of immigration is under the microscope. A recent AP poll shows that just 31 percent of Americans approve of Biden's immigration policy so far. Now, Senator Scott has already received some support from his colleagues on Capitol Hill, specifically Republican whip Senator John Thune has endorsed him officially. This is just the beginning of a long campaign where Scott will be vying to emerge from a crowded GOP primary, and his hopes are to challenge that Democrat nominee. Reporting in North Charleston, South Carolina, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. 
And over in Florida, the NAACP has issued a travel advisory for Florida in response to what it called the governor's aggressive attempts to erase black history. NTD's Arlene Richards spoke with a member of a black leadership network to get his response. Mike Hill, member of Project 21, the Black Leadership Network, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Arlene. It's my pleasure. As you know, the NAACP has issued a formal travel advisory for Florida to what they describe as Governor Ron DeSantis' aggressive attempts to erase black history and restrict diversity, equity, and inclusion in Florida schools. And as you also know, this is alluding to the governor blocking a high school advanced placement course for African-American studies. What's your reaction to this? Well, first of all, what Governor DeSantis did is I approve of, and it wasn't just Governor DeSantis alone. It was the Florida Department of Education. And what they decided was that advanced placement course focused too much on critical race theory, on diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, which all point to the fact that America has a history of systemic racism that continues to this day. And what DeSantis said instead was that, no, if we're going to teach history, including Black American history, it should be accurate and not focus on what they call systemic racism or focusing on critical race theory, which tends to make the statement that um, black Americans uh, are treated to racism at every turn, no matter what they do. Do you think that students should uh, learn about black history, diversity, and equity? They should learn about black history, yes. But I do not agree with the leftist ideology of diversity, equity, and inclusion, because what that focuses on is not um, equality, in other words, everyone will have an equal opportunity to succeed, but instead it focuses on equity, which means that there should be equal outcomes, regardless of someone's ability or the amount of effort that is put into um, a task that they have before them. Do you think students can filter through the information and develop their own viewpoints? Well, not by the course that was placed forward by advanced placement, the history advanced placement course. No, because what it focuses on instead are some of the mistreatments, which you cannot deny, which took place in the past, but it does not focus on contributions of Black Americans. In other words, focus on the positive instead of simply the negative, that um, you do not have to focus on um, those, because it did exist in the past, there's no denying it, that, that there were racist tendencies that did happen not only in Florida, but across the U.S. But we as a nation have gotten past that. The NAACP is now accusing DeSantis and the state of Florida of being hostile toward black Americans. What's your reaction to that? I think that's total nonsense. I have lived in Florida since 1985 as an adult first brought here as an Air Force officer, United States Air Force officer stationed here. Um, after uh, several years, I left the Air Force and started my own insurance and financial services agency, which has been very successful for the past 33 years. I have three grown children and their families who all live here. Florida is a place of opportunity and prosperity.
Mike Hill from Project 21, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. And a DeSantis spokesperson responded to the advisory today, calling it nothing more than a stunt. Former President Trump's social media company, Truth Social, has sued the Washington Post for defamation and is seeking over $3.7 billion in damages. The lawsuit was filed by Trump Media and Technology Group, which owns Truth Social. It accuses the Washington Post of defamation in connection with a May 13th article. The company calls the article an egregious hit piece that poses an existential threat to the Trump's company. The article is titled, Trust Linked to Porn-Friendly Bank Could Gain a Stake in Trump's Truth Social. Trump's company pointed out nine allegedly false claims from the article in its legal complaint. The Washington Post did not immediately respond to a request for comment on the lawsuit. Coming up, we hear from a January 6th defendant awaiting trial in prison. He shares his experiences and those of others in similar situations. New York City Mayor Eric Adams is calling on the federal government for help again to deal with the surge of illegal immigrants. But this time, he's not asking for more funding. And in cycling news, a former Olympian speaks out after a transgender athlete won a recent women's event. Though her outcry comes at a cost. We'll have her story and more coming up. We turn our attention to a topic that so far has not received a lot of attention. The men and women currently detained in prisons awaiting trial over allegations about their actions at the Capitol on January 6, 2021, more than two years ago. Earlier today, I spoke with one of those defendants, Jake Lang, by phone to learn more about his situation. Here's some of that conversation. Jake, you've been imprisoned for more than two years now, much of that in solitary confinement. All of that sounds quite surprising. Describe what your life has looked like over the last two plus years. Thanks, Steph. Um, for, for wondering, uh, many uh, Americans have seemed to forgot about the hundreds and hundreds of political prisoners uh, that have been locked up since January 6th. And uh, our lives have been uh, very tumultuous, dealing with uh, courtroom drama, biased DC jury pools um, and being moved all around the country and subjected to horrendous conditions of confinement uh, without haircuts for years on end, being able to have visits from family sometimes for over 15 months, uh, lack of sunlight exposure, poor diets, um, and mistreatment by the guards, including beatings and pepper sprays. But uh, we serve a God who is uh, able to save beyond all our circumstances. Yes, it does sound like really horrific uh, situation and experience. And as you mentioned, for many people, not just for yourself. And looking at your particular trial date, though, that was recently delayed till the end of the year. Did they give a reason for that? Yeah, um, basically, you know, my legal team and the government, there's still more evidence coming out. We've, we've just seen uh, 44,000 hours of January 6th footage Kevin McCarthy handed over to Tucker Carlson, but not over to the January 6th defendants. And so there's so much uh, exculpatory or an exonerating evidence that our legal teams are still trying to patch through. It has to deal with the immense amounts of Capitol Police brutality that uh, was witnessed and experienced 
uh, by Jan Sixers, uh, freedom-loving Americans that were unarmed, including the four unarmed Americans that died on Capitol Hill that day, Roseanne Boylan, Ashley Babbitt, Benjamin Phillips, and Kevin Greeson. And so we're waiting for more evidence to come out. It's been a slow process, but um, by the time my trial comes around in October of 2023, I will have been incarcerated without a trial for over 1,000 days. Just shocking. It's extraordinary uh, when you when you think about it. But yes, this uh, new evidence that's coming out, it's um, that will be fascinating to see what what shows up. Um, now. They, they want you to accept a 10-year plea deal for your actions on January 6th, but you're holding out despite the harsh conditions that you're going through. What's keeping you going? Oh, man, I have, uh, I have to give a big shout-out to all my brothers in uh, D.C. Gulag right now, um, the camaraderie that we have together, uh, our faith in Christ Jesus, um, our, our resolve that we basically stood for, on January 6th to make sure the Constitution is upheld, uh, keeps us going. And so we have the most amazing network of supporters, people that um, donate to us. And if anybody's listening right now wants to help support the January 6th, 6ers, please go to j6truth.org. We have documentaries on there that have been seen by millions of people. We have a January 6th legal fund on there that helps dozens of Jan 6ers. So please, if, if God puts it on your heart to help us out, um, which keeps us going, uh, Go to j6truth.org and, and support this cause for liberty and for freedom. My hope rests in the Lord, and I know he's working, and he's faithful, and he will redeem me and all my Jan 6 brothers. And, um, you know, we're doing a lot of great work, and we're getting a lot of um, publicity and noise through the efforts of me and my brothers in here doing documentaries and podcasts and interviews and uh, amazing uh, outlets like NTD and Epic Times that have given us a voice when no one um, when many mainstream media companies have rejected letting us speak freely, um, brave, brave patriots such as uh, you guys have, uh, have given us a voice. So those things give me hope. God and my fellow countrymen who know God and uh, are, are not afraid to uh, stand by us in this, uh, in this fight for our freedom. And thank you so much for having me on today. Thank you so much, Jake Lang. Really appreciate you um, giving us a chance also to, to share your story with the world. And yeah. all the best. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. God bless you. God bless America. New York City Mayor Eric Adams is still trying to solve the humanitarian crisis in New York City. And he says allowing the illegal immigrants to work legally would relieve much of the problem. NTD's Jason Perry has the details. I'm here in Brooklyn, right outside of the event where New York City Mayor Eric Adams and New York Governor Kathy Hochul just called on the federal government for help with the surge of illegal immigration. They want the federal government to provide expedited work authorization for the immigrants. Here's what they said. When I speak with my asylum seekers at the Herks, at the hotels, on the streets, they state clearly, we don't want your free room and board and food and clothing. We want to work. We want to have an opportunity to provide for ourselves. And right now we are denying that opportunity by refusing to let them work legally. But some of them choose to work anyway. It is creating an underground market where individuals could be exploited, unable to pay into our tax base, working long and difficult and dangerous 
jobs because they are living in the shadow of the American dream and not out front. And Hochul said she's working with the White House about the situation and added this. A lot of this is driven by the 1986 Immigration Reform and Control Act, which has employer sanctions and has a process for asylum seekers and legal, legal work status. We're simply saying, I understand that is what is written on the books, but we need your help to adapt to a circumstance which has right, reached a crisis situation. Then we spoke to some people in New York City to see if they think illegal immigrants should be able to work. Sure, why not? Everybody deserves to make a living. I don't have a problem with it. No. And then why not? Because it takes up the jobs and stuff for the people that's documented, the citizens that's here, the people that was born here. In a country full of immigrants, so I mean, I think it's really backwards to keep you know, putting them behind and not being able to get proper jobs because that's kind of when they turn to illegal stuff to make more money. And if we really want to get rid of that, then really have to start giving them opportunities because without opportunities, there's no room for success. So. New York City Mayor Eric Adams said the city has received over 70,000 illegal immigrants and that they're still taking care of 42,000. Jason Perry, NCD News, New York. Arizona, California, and Nevada proposed a plan today to significantly reduce their water use from the drought-stricken Colorado River over the next three years. This move is a potential breakthrough in a year-long stalemate that pitted the western states against one another. After a year-long negotiation, three states reached an agreement to conserve an additional 3 million acre-feet of water through 2026. That's roughly the equivalent of at least 6 million Olympic-sized swimming pools worth of water. The three states which form the lower basin are entitled to 7.5 million acre-feet of water altogether from the river. An acre-foot of water is roughly enough to serve two to three U.S. households annually. California gets the most, based on a century-old water rights priority system. Most of that goes to the farmers in the Imperial Irrigation District. Under the new proposal, California would give up about 1.6 million acre-feet of water through 2026. Arizona and Nevada would divide up and forego the remaining 1.4 million acre-feet. This agreement will enable them to convert some of that water to, to what we call system conservation, which is water that is theoretically permanently left in the system and no longer belongs to those water users. In a joint letter by the governors of all three states to Deb Holland, secretary of the U.S. Department of Interior, the governors stated that the product of this collaboration is measurable, verifiable, and enforceable water conservation volumes that provide immediate and substantial support for the Colorado River. The Colorado River has been in crisis for years due to a multi-decade drought in the West intensified by rising demand and overuse. Michael Cohen, a senior researcher at the Pacific Institute focused on the Colorado River, said the river's hydrology has improved a bit since last summer. He called the amount of cuts the three states have proposed a huge, huge lift and a significant step forward. A transgender athlete recently won a women's cycling race in New Mexico, raising eyebrows across the country while forcing cycling's governing body, UCI, to defend their policy. But one prominent former competitor has taken a chance by speaking out on the issue. 
NTD's Dave Martin has more. When 27-year-old Austin Killips won a Tour de Gila stage race back on April 30, the transgender athlete thanked the other riders for their support after, quote, a week of nonsense on the internet. Though it wasn't clear what nonsense Killips was talking about, at least one former Olympian cyclist let her opinion be known. Inga Thompson, who represented the United States at the 84, 88, and 92 Summer Games, tweeted, It is time for women cyclists to start protesting UCI's cycling policy. Start taking a knee at the starting lines. Team managers need to speak up and protect their riders. Hold signs at every race, save women's sports. Thompson is part of a group called Union Cyclist Feminine, which advocates for fairness in women's sports though they've had trouble convincing UCI to revisit their transgender policy. We have contacted the um, International Cycling Union many times, trying to get a voice, trying to get a seat at the table, because right now the only people that they consult are transgender women, and we've been silenced. Thompson, who's a former 10-time national champion, says simply that only biological women should compete in women's sports and that the burden should be on the transgender group to prove that their inclusion is fair, not the other way around. And until they come out with a science that shows that it is fair, you know, then you can proceed forward because a lot of the complications that you have is that with these studies it shows um, no amount of testosterone suppression mitigates the advantage of being born male, even 14 years after testosterone suppression. And so World Athletics said, well, if you transition before puberty, um, that's okay. But that one still has issues because there are, one, just having the Y chromosome changes everything. And there's small testosterone surges that happen in the womb testosterone surges that happen uh, before puberty, but just having the Y chromosome um, changes things. Thompson has paid a price for speaking up on the issue. The Hall of Fame cyclist was promptly removed as director of Seneca's cycling team after a call for a protest while being publicly criticized for deciding to, quote, dedicate her time to excluding people who are otherwise and currently eligible to compete in UCI events. Thompson, though, maintains Killips is just following the rules and it's the policy she takes issue with. Meanwhile, she says that speaking up while others are feared into silence is a responsibility she takes seriously. I think it's too much to ask an athlete to speak up. It is, it, it, it is too hot of a topic and they have too much to lose. But that's where the rest of us come in as coaches, as team managers, as um, ex-athletes like myself we should be speaking up to protect them. And I and, and the correlations I have for that is like, I now have the right to vote. And that was the women before me that were older and stronger that could advocate. But me as, as a young woman athlete, I think it's asking too much. Now, if they do want to step up, awesome. But I, I don't think that they can afford to do it. After Thompson's calls for a protest, UCI has now announced it will revisit its transgender policy. This is Dave Martin, NTD News. Coming up, the G7 countries pledge a joint effort to counter China as the Seven Nation Summit comes to a close. What actions are they planning and how is China responding? And Ukraine is disputing Russia's claim over the city of Bakhmut. The Ukrainian city has seen the longest battle during the war. Stay tuned for more here on NTD News.
A unified approach against China's growing assertiveness. That's what leaders of some of the world's top democracies have agreed to. The Group of Seven Summit in Japan came to a close on Sunday. In attendance, the U.S., Britain, Canada, France, Germany, Italy and Japan. NTD's Sam Wang has more. Member nations of the G7 summit agreed to a statement on Sunday, aiming to de-risk without decoupling from China, while urging the regime to play by international rules. The leaders are tightening their grip on critical goods like minerals and semiconductors. U.S. President Joe Biden said the seven nations agreed to reduce economic reliance on China. So we're not dependent on any one country for necessary products. It means resisting economic coercion together encountering harmful practices that hurt our workers. It means protecting a narrow set of advanced technologies critical for our national security. As of now, both the U.S. and Europe rely heavily on foreign sources for critical minerals, an area China currently dominates. The nation released a joint communique at the end of the summit, addressing China's human rights issues while calling for peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait and the South China Sea. They're also calling on China to use its influence to broker peace amid the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Biden said that the U.S. doesn't see Taiwan as an independent nation, but he pledged to put Taiwan in a position where it can defend itself. And there is clear understanding among most of our allies that, in fact, if China were to act unilaterally, there would be a response. Despite never having ruled the island, the Chinese Communist Party views Taiwan as its own territory and aims to take it by force if necessary. U.K. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said that China presents a great risk to security and prosperity. Germany, France and Japan were all more cautious with their China stance due to potential impacts on their economies. John Mills, former director of cybersecurity policy for the Defense Department, told NTD that the statements they put out by leaders were strong but late. It's late in the game. These were the kind of comments that should have been said uh, uh, several years ago by these, these, these countries. In response to the summit, China summoned the Japanese ambassador and condemned Britain. Chinese state-run newspaper Global Times called the G7 an anti-China workshop. As of last year, China was Japan's largest market for both imports and exports. That means if China were to retaliate, Japan's economy could face a major blow. The regime also urged the U.S. to change its perception on China and bring ties back on track. Sam Wong, NTT News, New York. News on U.S.-China competition. Another company now banned over security concerns, but this time... The company is not Chinese, it's American, and China is the one banning it. China's cyberspace regulator said over the weekend that products made by U.S. chipmaker Micron had failed the agency's security review and that China would block its infrastructure providers from buying from the company. Here's a closer look at the details. China says a major U.S. chipmaker, Micron Technology, failed a review and poses a national security risk. It announced on Sunday that it was banning them from being used in key infrastructure projects. The move appears to be an escalation of tension over technology and trade between Beijing and Washington. It follows a weeks-long review into Micron by China's cyberspace regulator and could affect everything from transport to telecoms to finance. In a statement, the CAC said it had concluded that Micron, quote, pose significant security risks to China's critical information infrastructure supply chain. The CAC did not provide details on what risks it had found, nor what Micron products would be affected. 
Within hours, the U.S. Commerce Department said the ban had no basis in fact. Micron gets about 10% of its revenue from China, but it's not clear if the company's sales to non-Chinese customers in the country will be affected. In its own statement, Micron said it had received the CAC's notice and it looks forward to continuing to engage in discussions with Chinese authorities. China's announcement came as world leaders were meeting for the G7 summit in Japan. That same day, U.S. President Joe Biden said they had agreed to de-risk and diversify our relationship with China. The U.S. has already imposed a series of export controls on chip-making technology to China and moved to prevent Micron rival Yancy Memory Technologies from buying certain American components. Sunday's news helped boost stocks on Micron's rivals like South Korea's Samsung, which are seen as benefiting if mainland firms seek memory chips elsewhere. Despite the news, the ban was not a major surprise. Earlier this year, the U.S. urged South Korea to avoid filling chip shortages in China if Micron got banned from selling them in the country. Plus, Micron might have already considered other ways to diversify its supply chains. In March, the company voiced plans to invest up to $3.7 billion in extreme ultraviolet technology, or EUV, in Japan. The technology has cutting-edge chip-making applications. And speaking of China, a new Pacific defense deal is helping Washington shore up influence in the region as it competes with China. The U.S. signed an agreement with Papua New Guinea today. The nation's prime minister called it mutually beneficial. Here's NTD's Tiffany Meyer with more. A new Pacific defense deal helping Washington shore up influence in the region as it competes with China. The U.S. signed an agreement with Papua New Guinea Monday. The nation's prime minister called it mutually beneficial. It secures our national interest to grow into becoming a robust economy in this part of the world as we live today and going forward. So, uh, USA remains the number one economy. USA remains the, the leader of the free world. For those of us who believe in democracy, for those of us who believe in a Christian worldview, we share many commonalities with the United States of America. The pact involves two parts, security and maritime cooperation. Here's what it does. It expands the Pacific Island nation's defense capabilities, makes it easier for U.S. and Papua New Guinea military forces to train together, and enhances humanitarian aid and disaster response. We are deeply invested in the Indo-Pacific because our planet's future is being written here. And Papua New Guinea is playing a critical role in shaping that future. Blinken led the U.S. delegation instead of President Joe Biden, who cut his Asia trip short to deal with the debt ceiling crisis at home. Papua New Guinea's location just north of Australia makes it strategically significant. It was the site of fierce battles during World War II and is the most populous Pacific Island country. The growing presence of both the U.S. and allies, like India, supports a goal to deter Pacific Island nations from forming security ties with China. That's become a rising concern amid tension over Taiwan and after Beijing signed a security pact with the Solomon Islands. Asked by a reporter about how China ties in, Marape said the deal, quote, has nothing to do with China. Blinken echoed that. The agreements that we've reached, the work that we're doing, is not about any other country. 
The nations also struck a separate deal. It boosts U.S. Coast Guard patrols in Papua New Guinea's exclusive economic zone to protect its economy from illegal fishing. The full wording of the security agreement will be made public once politicians in both countries have an opportunity for input, likely in a couple of months. Two million dollars, a high price tag for a practical joke, a recent and seemingly innocuous quip incurring the hefty fine in China. Beijing handed down the stiff penalty after a Chinese comedian likened his dog's behavior to an army slogan. Here's how it played out. Li Hao Shir went viral on Chinese social media after a live stand-up in Beijing on May 13th. During the show, Li teased a scene of his two adopted dogs chasing a squirrel. These two dogs reminded me of eight words, fine style of work, capable of winning battles. The audience was heard bursting into laughter, but some took issue with the quote, fine style of work, capable of winning battles. The punchline was coined by Chinese Communist Party leader Xi Jinping in 2013. Xi set it as a goal for China's People's Liberation Army. Beijing's regulators slapped the penalty on the company that hired Li. Xiao Guo Cultural Media, the nation's best-known comedy firm, is facing a fine of over $2 million. If it were just about the military, that would still be fine. The point is that the phrase is Xi Jinping's guidance to the military. It can't be quoted in any context other than touting it, let alone using it to describe stray dogs. Officials accused Li of stepping out of line and, in their words, wantonly slandering the glorious image of the army. They also called on the entertainment industry to correct its creative thinking. The company was later suspended from all performances in Beijing. Li was then arrested with the possibility of serving prison time. One analyst called out Beijing for overreacting. It creates a military-first policy climate that could benefit the CCP's plans for a future war in the Taiwan Strait or the rollout of military control nationwide. In mid-February, China's propaganda department banned another celebrity comedian. That entertainer had allegedly mocked Beijing's pandemic control measures during his North American tour. And turning our attention now to the war in Ukraine. Ukraine is disputing Russia's claim that Russian forces have captured the city of Bakhmut. Russia claimed Saturday that they have captured the city of Bakhmut in eastern Ukraine with the help of the Wagner mercenary group. The eight-month battle for Bakhmut has been the longest and probably bloodiest of the conflict in Ukraine so far. There's not a single Ukrainian soldier in Bakhmut because we've stopped taking prisoners. But there's a huge number of corpses of the Ukrainian military. Bakhmut has been taken completely, along all of its legal boundaries down to the last centimeter. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky on Sunday disputed the claim. He told reporters during the G7 summit in Japan that Ukrainian forces are still in Bakhmut. All military personnel know how to act in such a situation and how to prevent our people from being captured by the enemy. Today they're performing a critical task. Today they're in Bakhmut. Where exactly, I cannot say. But this suggests that Bakhmut has not been captured by the Russian Federation as of today. There can't be two or three interpretations of this. Ukraine said its forces were still advancing around the edges of Bakhmut, with the aim of encircling the city. 
Bakhmut had a population of 80,000 before the war and was an important industrial center surrounded by salt and gypsum mines. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, has to pay a record $1.3 billion fine. European privacy regulators are calling out the company for how it handled user information. The social media company was also given five months to stop transferring user, users' data to the United States. The fine was imposed by Ireland's Data Protection Commissioner. Meta said it will appeal the ruling, calling the fine unjustified and unnecessary. The decision is associated with a case brought by Australian privacy com campaigner Max Schrams. He argued that the system for transferring the data of EU citizens to the U.S. failed to protect Europeans from U.S. surveillance. And coming up, a senior center in Southern California is celebrating Mental Health Awareness Month. We'll hear how mental health groups help individuals in distress. That and more coming up. Climate activists descended on a popular monument in Italy yesterday. They dumped charcoal into Rome's famous Trevi Fountain, turning the water black. The authorities say about 10 people from a group called Last Generation showed up at the site holding banners with slogans like, Our country is dying and we won't pay for fossil. Rome's police say all of the activists were arrested at the scene and face vandalism charges. The group has previously carried out two similar attacks. Rome's mayor called on the activists to stop targeting national and artistic monuments. He wrote on Twitter, enough of these absurd attacks on our artistic heritage. And finally, it's Mental Health Awareness Month. One senior center in Southern California is celebrating it by hosting a series of events. We hear more from the center and their volunteers on the importance of mental health. Over the weekend, the Langley Senior Center in Monterey Park celebrated Mental Health Awareness Month. Groups that provide mental health were also present to talk about what they've encountered. We learn how to handle the irritations and frustrations of daily life. So I missed my bus, I, put some, I dropped something on my, on my pants, I uh, said something to somebody I'm really sorry I said. We learn how to deal with those without getting all upset about it. Either getting upset with ourselves or getting upset with the other person. Youngheim's group holds meetings online to help people from around the country go through a process to recover. We're just helping people that choose to come and work on their own mental health. We're not, we're not making them well, we're not treating them. They are coming to get their own techniques to practice and learn how to do it. There are groups who help the young and old suffering from a mental illness. For me, the most important thing to understand is that it's nobody's fault that someone gets a mental health condition and there is help available. If you come to NAMI, you will meet people who have maybe had the same situation as you and can give you support and ideas on what to do and how to help yourself and how to help your family member. Other self-care activities include planting, journaling, meditation and yoga. And finally, if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. 
And a quick announcement, NTD Evening News is returning to a one-hour format at a new time slot. Catch us every weekday from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Eastern Time. We look forward to bringing you more content, so be sure to tune in again tomorrow. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.